You can have a seat. It is good to see all of you today. Uh, this is the first Sunday of 2022 with no rain, no snow. Of course, everybody has COVID now, but it's still, it's good to like have a day of sunshine and, and it's cold out there, but that's fine. Uh, the last time I was here, which was two weeks ago, I told you that the sermon today was going to be the greatest sermon I've ever heard. And I wasn't talking about one of my sermons, I was talking about uh, one of my Uncle Jimmy's sermons. And my uncle's a preacher, for those of you that don't know, he's, uh, he's actually retiring uh, next month. He's been at the church he's at for, I think, 42, 43 years, so I'm trying to catch him. Uh, i got a ways to go. But he, he preached a sermon back when I was in my 20s, and I, I've, I've always referred to it as the, the greatest sermon I've ever heard. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it today because <laughs> I changed my mind. I had two weeks to change my mind. I told you it was a possibility when I had one week to change my mind. I changed my mind, and I'll explain why I changed my mind in just a minute. But I feel like I at least owe you an explanation of what was the greatest sermon I've ever heard. So I'm not going to preach it. I was going to try to recreate his sermon, like take what he preached and recreate it. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I will tell you what it was about. And you're probably going to roll your eyes when you hear what it was about. But just hang with me for a minute. It was a sermon on tithing was what he preached. And um, I heard it when I was probably 21, 22, 23, somewhere in that range. And it was the first sermon I'd ever heard on tithing. Now, for those of you that grew up in certain denominations, you're like, what? That, that you didn't hear a sermon on tithing until you were in your 20s? What kind of church did you grow up in? Uh, the, the denomination I grew up in didn't teach tithing. It's, it's an Old Testament concept that comes from... Uh, the idea of giving the first fruits of your harvest, like the first 10% of your harvest goes to God. So it's kind of like the idea of the first 10% of your income goes to God. And uh, it's not necessarily taught in the New Testament. The New Testament just talks about generous or extravagant giving. And so I'd never heard a message on tithing. Uh, I grew up, you know, being taught messages on giving, but I'd never been taught to tithe. And then also at that point in my life, my parents did all the giving. So I had, I, I was like... All, all my life, my parents, I mean, yeah, we passed plates every Sunday at church, but my parents gave, and they might give me a dollar or two to drop in the plate when I was a kid, and in my 20s, that's still kind of what I was doing. I was just in the habit of like dropping a dollar or two in the plate, and I remember Jimmy taught this message. It was called Take God at His Word, and um, Jimmy taught this message, and my wife and I went home after church that Sunday, and we looked at each other and we're like, we're, we're going to tithe, like we're going to start tithing, so let's, let's do it, and so we sat down, got out the calculator. It was a pretty easy calculation. I was making 26000 a year. She was still in school. 2600 divided by 52, $50 a week. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I mean, I just, I remember us like all excited. Yeah, let's tithe. And we calculated out and $50 a week. Like, oh, no, uh, we can't write $50 a week. No, just, I, that's, we, I know. Uh, we, I, uh, no, we can't do that. And um, I don't remember what we said. I know we didn't start with the tithe. We had, to, we had to back down. I don't remember if it was $15 a week or $20 a week or whatever. But we backed down and we came up with a number and said, okay, I think we can do this. And we'll work our way up to the tithe. I think we can start here. And uh, it wasn't a full tithe yet, but it was intentional and it was planned. And that was the first time in my life that I was intentional and I planned my giving. I just didn't open up my wallet and ah, whatever it comes. You know, I was intentional and planned it. And uh, so the way I did it was on Friday, I would get paid with a physical check on Friday that I had to take to a, a physical bank and hand to a real-life person and ask them to put it in my account. 
Remember the old days? And then I, I would write a check. Like I would go out of the bank and sit in my truck, and I would write a check out to the church, and I would put that in my wallet. And that, to me, was like the first fruits. That's the way I did the first fruits. I was thinking in my mind, like, okay, the very first check out of my paycheck, the very first check I write is going to go to God out of my paycheck, and then I'll give it on Sunday. And um, the reason I say it's the greatest sermon I've ever heard is because that simple little practice changed my life. And it changed, I mean, it, it formed a habit that has been with me ever since I heard it. I mean, it, it, and it really, truly had a profound impact on my life. I still do that. I don't, I don't get paid with a physical check anymore. It's automatically deposited into my account. And I don't uh, write a physical check to the church anymore. It's automatically deducted from my account. But I still do that. And, and every January, I'll sit down and kind of calculate out what, what my salary looks like and what the tithe looks like and I'll call and adjust the ACH and all that kind of stuff. I still do that and I love doing that. Like it's fun to, if, if I have irregular income, which I have a little bit, my wife's a commercial real estate broker, all her income is irregular. And so I got this whole elaborate spreadsheet of like how we calculate the formulas and the percentages and what goes where and all And I love it. I mean, it's fun to, it is, it's fun to me to give. And it, it changed my mindset. What, did, what Jimmy did with that message is he changed my mindset to me living on 100% of what I make to me living on 90% of what I make. And that, that changed. It, it just changed. It changed me. And as I, I'm so glad I learned that when I was younger because as I got older and as the income increased, it became easier to give. Not because the income increased, but because I was already used to living on 90%. So I was used to living on 90%. It was very easy. So like if you get a raise or you get a bonus or you get a commission check or something, the first thing that pops into my mind is, okay, what is that? Okay, this is what I get to give out of that. And that's fun. Like I enjoy it. That ins it inspires me. I know there's different spiritual gifts. Uh, I, I don't, I'm hesitant to say like giving is a spiritual gift of mine. I'll say this, I get inspired when I'm able to give, and I get inspired when I see other people giving. It's just something like, you know, there's certain things that kind of inspire us spiritually. We see somebody doing an act of service. We see somebody doing a, a, a kind deed for somebody, somebody uttering a kind word, and that inspires us. I get inspired with giving, and that's why it's, it, to me, was the greatest sermon I ever heard, because it, it really changed the course and directory of my life. Um, but I'm not going to preach that sermon today. I guess I did just a little bit. But <laughs> like I said, I get fired up about it. I'm not going to preach that sermon today. I changed my mind. And I, I want to give you the three reasons why. It all happened kind of in a quick succession a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one was something I said two Sundays ago. I preached a sermon called, uh, Sir, We Want to See Jesus. And it was based on John chapter 12, verse 21. And I said, that's, that's what we want. In, in 2022, we want to see more of Jesus. And so then I thought, how do you follow a sermon about how we want to see more of Jesus with a teaching on tithing? Like, that's probably not a good fit. I know tithing is important, and it's biblical, and we need to teach it. But if you're going to talk about we want to see more of Jesus, maybe the next week talk about more of Jesus. And so that was part of it. The second one was somebody that talked to me after one of the services a couple weeks ago. And said something along the lines of, I don't even know why I'm here today. You know, I just, I, I need some help. And I'm not sure what I think about all this. I'm not even sure how I feel about Jesus right now. But I need help. And I don't know why I showed up here. But I showed up here and I need help. And it, it, I thought that's, that's why a lot of us show up at church. Like, especially if we've been out of church for a long time. That's why a lot of us show up, because we just need help. Something's in crisis, something's going on, and we don't know where else to turn, and we turn to Jesus, and we're not even sure if we believe in Jesus, and that may be why you're here today. It may be why you're tuning in online. You may be why on Facebook you saw it pop up, and you just, I, I don't even know if I buy all this stuff, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it. And 
I thought if somebody needs help, they don't need to hear really about giving. <laughs> and again, it's important, and I know we need to talk about it, but if somebody needs help, they need to hear about Jesus because that's where you find the help. And then the next morning, so all these things kind of fall on together. The next morning I was reading Brenning Manning's book, and I talked about this last week in my snow sermon. I talked about Manning's book, and he talks about grace. And he talks about how grace is scandalous and gratuitous and really, if you think about it, unfair. Like, it's a concept that, like, like we, we don't even, we can't even wrap our minds around grace. Even churches that teach and preach and practice grace still don't really have a full concept of what grace really is. Because when you get a full concept of what grace really is, it, it just, it'll absolutely blow your mind. And um, I'm like, that's what I need to talk about. We need to talk about Jesus and we need to talk about grace. Because if you need help, that's Jesus and grace. That's, that's what we need to hear, and that's what we need to talk about. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. And I'm going to use two stories that if you grew up in church, you've heard your entire life, I'm going to ask you to listen to them with um, fresh ears this morning, like a fresh perspective this morning. We're going to talk about the parable of the prodigal son. You're like, oh, yeah, I know that one. I know what happens there. And we're going to talk about the story of the woman caught in adultery. And, again, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've read those a hundred times. I've heard dozens of sermons preached about those. Manning, in his book, makes a point using those two stories that I had never really considered before. That there's a takeaway that I'd, I'd never, I'd, I've seen, you know, like I said, I've read these a hundred times, you've read them a hundred times, but I'd never really seen this before. And so I'm going to teach these parables in reverse. I'm going to tell you the point, and then I'm going to read you the story. And the reason is I don't want you to miss the point while I read the story because it's so easy to do. So I want to I kind of make the application, then read the stories, and the stories just kind of preach themselves. Here's, here's the point, okay? We don't have to be perfect or even very good before God will accept us. We don't have to wallow in guilt, shame, and self-condemnation in order to, to earn his forgiveness. We don't have to wait until we have it all together. We don't have to wait until we've got it all figured out and cleaned up and ready to make ourselves presentable for him. We don't even have to be presentable to him. God just wants us to show up as we are, and he will extend mercy. Now that's, a, that's a paraphrase. Manning takes about five or six chapters to unpack that concept. That's a paraphrase of those five or six chapters. Here's the actual quote. If you throw that one up for me, Parker. The gospel of grace announces forgiveness precedes repentance. The sinner is accepted before he pleads for mercy. It is already granted. He need only to receive it. Total amnesty, gratuitous pardon. Now, if you've been in church for a while, when you read that quote, the first thing that pops in your mind is probably, now, wait a minute, that's backwards, isn't it? I've always been taught that it's the other way around, that repentance precedes forgiveness if you want forgiveness you got to repent so i mean you got to percent repentance comes first there's no forgiveness without proper repentance god's not willing to just welcome us until we've given the proper apology jesus requires some type of proof of change in order to accept us and i know that i mean i'm not going to get deep into this whole repentance forgiveness thing because i'm going to fall way heavy on grace this morning so y'all just uh, just be prepared. But um, 
like I, I know that we, we get confused into that concept because we're like, well, you know, you've got to repent in order to receive forgiveness. And, and until you repent, it's not just we've got to repent to receive forgiveness, but you've got to repent properly to receive forgiveness. You've got you to do it in the right way, and you've got to have the right heart, and you've got to have the right, you know, contrite spirit. And God requires some kind of proof in order to extend his grace. Proof of change. The reason we feel that way is because people require some kind of proof of change in order to forgive their, extend their forgiveness. Churches require some kind of proof of change. I gotta see something here. And um, you know, if it's, if it's not forgiveness, then repentance. It's repentance, then forgiveness, right? <laughs> That's the way we've always thought about it. But then you listen to this story that Jesus told in Luke 15, which is a very radical story meant to shake people up and then you listen to the story that's told about Jesus in John chapter 8, which is also a very radical story that is not something Jesus told, but something Jesus did. And again, meant to shake things up just a little bit. So I want you to start with the point. The gospel of grace announces forgiveness precedes repentance. The sinner is accepted before he pleads for mercy. It's already granted. All he has to do is receive it. Here's the stories. The parable of the lost son. This is in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. You can follow along on the screen. Now, Jesus tells these stories uh, to Pharisees and teachers of the law. So he's telling these stories to the religious who were very exclusive in who they accepted and who they, well, who they forgave. And so Jesus tells, tells these, these three stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And this is the lost son. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. There's a part two to that story about the elder brother, but I want to focus just on that, that younger brother because so many times we like to look and see ourselves as the elder brother, and that is why Jesus tells the story. But I want us to look at the younger brother because it's very obvious from the parable. The father represents God, our heavenly father, and the son represents us. And when we squander our lives, when we rebel and turn our backs on God, when we run off to a distant country, that doesn't mean that God stops loving us at that point. Like, that's the point God stopped loving us. When we turned our backs on him, God said, okay, well, now you're out of my love. 
or when we, when we messed up, when we squandered the, the things he had given us, when we ran away from home, that's not the point at which God stops loving us. His love for us never changes. Regardless of whether or not we're living in his love at the time, his love for us never changes. And when we finally come to our senses, that's one of my favorite lines in the parable, is like when he came to his senses. Because at some point, I like, all of us have done that. We've, we've rebelled, we've run away, we've turned our backs on God. At some point, you come to your senses. And it says when he finally came to his senses, he came back to his father with this whole prepared apology, this, this well-rehearsed speech that he would, you know, father, I'm, you know, he wasn't even asking to be accepted as a son anymore. He just wanted to be accepted as one of his father's servants. He comes back with his speech, and he can't even finish the whole thing. Like he doesn't, I mean, it's, it's almost like the father's not even listening to him. Like he goes, Father, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against heaven. And the father's too busy planning a party to listen to the son's apology speech. Like he's like, go kill the fatted calf and bring a robe and put it on his back and put a ring on his finger. And th this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He's lost, and he is found. And you contrast that with, like I try to think of it from an earthly father perspective. That's not typically the way we respond. Okay, we're, we, we would be very tempted to say, if you know, put yourself as the earthly father in this, you have a son that, that rebels, that, that takes everything good you have given him and squanders it. And you knew he was going to squander it. When he, the day he asked for the inheritance, you're like, I know this is not going to end well. But okay, fine. You go do your thing. If you want to do your thing, you go do your thing. As an earthly father, I would be very tempted to not run to the son as he comes walking down the driveway, but to sit and go, well, this is going to be interesting. Can't wait to hear what he has to say this time. Come on. And I would 100% let him finish the speech. Come on, tell me. Tell me all of it. Go ahead. Finish the whole speech. I'd like to hear everything. Tell me, tell me everything uh, that you learned because I told you this was going to happen. I told you this was going to happen. So go ahead. Let me hear it. And then after the speech, we might give some consideration to whether or not we would forgive. And it depends on maybe the, how contrite he is. he truly contrite? Is he truly sorry? Is, has he truly, is this truly a repentance on his part? Or is this just words he's saying? Like, like we, would, we would evaluate it in our mind. But God's forgiveness in this story is immediate and complete. It's not dependent upon the sincerity of the apology. It's not dependent on the words that the son used. It's not dependent on making the son squirm just a little bit so that we've got proof that, yeah, he truly is sorry. Okay, now I can finally forgive him. I mean, it's just, it's immediate. It was like it was always there. From the very beginning, from the day the son left, the forgiveness was always there. All he had to do was come to his senses and accept it. That's all he had to do. It was always there. The father never stopped loving the son. The father never stopped waiting on the son. His compassion never waned. It was always there. All he had to do is accept it. And that's a story that Jesus tells in order to, to illustrate the radical nature of grace. And there's an older brother in the story that's offended by that kind of grace. Like, whoa, that's not fair. And grace is not fair. If we truly understand the nature of grace, it's not fair. It is, it's not, because grace is something that we don't deserve and we don't earn. And that's not fair to receive something that you didn't deserve and you didn't earn. That's not fair. Here's a story that is told about Jesus that uh, illustrates this same concept. This is in chapter 8 of John, beginning in verse, well, it starts in verse 53, actually, of, of chapter 7. When they all went home, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and then, 
uh, starting there at verse 2. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, there they are again, um, brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Because that's, that is what the law of Moses said, but they weren't, doing, they weren't stoning people at that particular day and time. But they were, this was a trap. This was a theological trap. Pharisees and teachers of the law love theological traps. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this time, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus was the only one left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, this story is, is first, first off, just imagine the shame of standing before a group of accusers who are ready to condemn. Stones in hand, right? Ready to condemn. Just imagine the shame. And she's standing before them not falsely accused. She's, she's guilty. So she's standing before them as guilty. Um, they're guilty of double standards and hypocrisy because the man's not standing along with her. It's only the woman who was brought before. Um, but she's guilty. And so you imagine the, the feelings of shame, the feelings of regret, uh, the, the feelings of guilt, and all these angry faces encircling you to condemn when Jesus turns to her and says... I don't condemn you. And again, our earthly kind of mindset kicks in and we're like, what, wait a minute though. I mean, I, okay, she doesn't deserve to be stoned, but how could you forgive her? How could you not condemn her if she was caught in the very act? She hasn't even repented yet. She hasn't even given, I mean, the, the prodigal son, he gave a little bit of a speech. She hadn't even given a speech yet. I mean, that's, that's, this, how do you know that she's repented? How do you know that she's sorry? How do you know that when you, you just tell her to leave and go leave this life of sin, how do you know she's not going to go back into that life of sin? And it's the same concept. It's because the forgiveness already existed. All she had to do was accept it. Like Jesus could offer her forgiveness without proof of repentance because the forgiveness existed before she said a word. The forgiveness existed. And again, we don't, this is not the way we do things in, in the earthly realm. That's why it's so hard to get our minds around grace because we just don't see that kind of grace displayed from anybody but Jesus. But, you know, I've, I've been in church meetings, thankfully not many at this church and, and not in a long time because Murray Hills is a little different kind of church. But I've been in church leaderships meetings where they talked about the, um, uh, the, the sincerity of somebody's apology or the sincerity of somebody's repentance. Or, you know, whether or not they were truly contrite. Whether or not they've truly, you know, what would happen if we forgive and accept, you know, what's, what's going to happen to the church's reputation here? Because if they're truly not sorry and then they go back to this life of sin, then we're going to look, you know, kind of, well, we're not going to look good. And, like, I mean, there, there's conversation, because that's what you're questioning. Because before I forgive, I need to know whether or not there's, there's proof of that. But in, in God's forgiveness, 
and God's forgiveness, um, it operates very differently. She's already forgiven. With Jesus, we're already forgiven. And that's grace. We're forgiven because of what he did for us on the cross. And it's, and it's not fair. And it's not, um, like when you truly, it's, it's like the offensive side of grace or the scandalous side of grace or the gratuitous side of grace. It's like, you know, like it's like, this, it's, you can't even, you can't get your mind around it because we know nothing else in earth that operates like yet. And a matter of fact, I think the earth is getting less and less, well, let me put it this way. I think the earth is getting more and more judgmental while the church, hopefully, is getting more and more grace-filled. I used to think, like 20 years ago when I started preaching, I thought, well, you know, the world is kind of, you have a better likelihood of it getting grace from the world than you do from the church because the church is very judgmental. I actually think that's flipping. I think you've got a better chance of receiving grace from the church now than you do from the world. And if you want evidence, just go to Twitter. Uh, I mean, I, just, just go to it. I mean, even last night during the Titans game, oh, gosh. This, I'd hate to be the offensive coordinator for the Titans right now because he's got no grace. I hate to be Tannehill right now because he's got no grace. I mean, there, there. I mean, it. We think like the the world is very tolerant and all that. It's not. I mean, there is stuff. I can't tell you how many times I have read social media, and or or read an article about something and thought, thank God that did not exist when I was in college. Goodness, thank goodness that did not exist. Because there are people who are held accountable for their mistakes years and years and years and years and years after it happens. There's people, we're dredging up folks, but 10 years ago they said such and such. and not, We don't give any account that they may have changed, that, that things may be different now. But I mean, there's, we are so quick as a society to condemn. I read one article, it was something that a guy said in 1979 at a bar at 2 a.m. when he was drunk. He was in his 20s, and he said, and what he said was inappropriate, 100%. I'm not even going to tell you because I'm afraid you might cancel me. What he said was inappropriate, okay? But in 1979, and no matter what he's done to say, I'm sorry for that, no matter what he's done to work to change that, no matter, it, it, people still dredging it up in 2022 is like, well, this guy, he's still this, and he's still this. Like, you know, they're still bringing it up. And again, it's like, there's not a lot of grace out there in the world. There's not a lot. And it's, we are so quick to condemn, and, so, and, and you, know, you read these stories, and you're like, thank goodness that God doesn't hold grudges like that. Thank goodness that God's forgiveness is immediate and complete. I'll give you an example of it. And it's my, my friend Don McLaughlin uh, shares this story. And it is stuck, again, this was another one. I think I heard this when I was a teenager. And it's one of those stories that's just kind of stuck with me. But it's an illustration that Don McLaughlin uh, used that said, you know, imagine you get to heaven, and the first thing you do when you get to heaven is uh, they say, I won't say St. Peter, everybody does St. Peter, but you know, the first thing you do to get to heaven, they say, okay, well, the first thing we're going to do before you get into heaven is uh, we're going to watch a video of all your sin. So we just want to, just, we want to see this before you, you know, receive your eternal inheritance. We're going to we're going to watch a film, and it has all your sin on it. It has every mistake you have made. It has every mishap. It has every, every word you've spoken that you shouldn't have spoken, every action you've done that you shouldn't have, things you shouldn't have done, every thought. And it includes things that you are aware of and things that you are not aware of. And it includes things that were public, and it includes things that were hidden that nobody else knows about but you. And we're just going to watch it all. And, and you imagine the sense of 
dread. You imagine what the kind of the woman caught in adultery felt like standing before you. Know, you imagine the sense of dread as the screen rolls down and you're like, oh gosh. And so the camera starts. The video starts rolling. And you're watching and you, I mean, you are just dread. You can't even imagine what is on this thing. And no picture comes up. You're like, well, there's no sound. It's just, it's, it's a blank screen. And you, you're like, well, I thought we were going to watch a picture of all my, I thought we were going to watch a film of all my sins. Like we are, we're watching it. But there's nothing on the screen. Yeah. Did, didn't you read the promises of God? Didn't you read Hebrews 8, chapter 12? I'll remember their wickedness no more. I will remember their sin no more. It doesn't exist. Because Jesus has forgiven it and wiped the slate clean. That's grace. Let me pray for us. Father, when we read those stories, um, like the prodigal son, there's just a little bit of self-righteousness pops into us and says, yeah, but what about? What about? Or read the woman caught in adultery and, yeah, but what about? You know, he, you, know you told her to go sin no more, so there's the proof. Father, just let us, help us to read those stories and just sit in the grace and just realize for us what you've done for us. That we were not deserving of that grace, um, but yet you extended it to us. And we haven't earned it, but yet you've given it to us. And let us just sit in that and be thankful. And let us just say thank you for what you've done. And uh, the incredible gift that you have given us of your son. And the incredible gift that you have given us of his grace. The mercy that was extended to us. Father, we are thankful for that. I'm thankful for your church and your people who are ready and willing to extend that to this world. And I pray that we would be one of those churches, that we would be a place that is grace-oriented and, and, and non-judgmental. And uh, we're ready to err on the side of grace and ready to err on the side of mercy, that we would, we would extend that to our fellow man. We would extend that to, to people that... Um, who may not be deserving of it and may not be worthy of it. But just as you've forgiven us, you call us to forgive others. So help us to learn what that looks like and help us to practice that uh, in our lives. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.